This is The Secret Library, a podcast about writing and publishing books. I'm Caroline Donahue, a life coach who works with writers, and I'm here to tell you this is your year. It's time to stop waiting and start writing. This is episode 77. My guest this week is Piper Hugley, who was named in 2015 as a top 10 historical romance novelist in Publishers Weekly. She's the author of the Reconstruction Era Home to Milford College series and a 2013 and 2014 Golden Heart finalist for two novels in the Migrations of the Heart series. That series is about the Bledsoe sisters and is set in the early 20th century. I am so excited to have Piper on to talk about subverting genre, getting outside of expectations, and also the difficult process of well, not difficult for her, apparently difficult for me, process of writing from a historical era and blending fiction and the construct of the history, which you're trying to bring to life. I loved, loved talking to Piper. And I think there's a lot we can take from this conversation to kind of explore getting outside expectations, getting outside the usual narrative and looking at other ways to approach story. So here we go with Piper. Hey, Piper, thanks so much for coming on. Oh, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah, of course. So you write historical romance, which is awesome, because I find myself completely drawn in by stories that have sort of a new take or a new angle or give us a new window or perspective on history. And it seems like that's been a major through line through your work. Yes, I would certainly say so. I would agree with that. So what originally pulled you to history? I mean, you talk on your site a little bit about how you wanted to look at stories that were maybe left out or weren't told properly or any, but I'd love to hear more about your process of coming to historical romance. Yes, um, it uh, was uh, something that slowly dawned on me. Um, and once it did, it made me wonder why it had not dawned on me before that this was something I should be doing. Um, so I felt a little bit uh, ashamed and embarrassed. And I was like, well, of course, this is what you should be doing, you fool. Um, <laughs> because, um, you know, I always had this thing about waiting around every year for Beverly Jenkins to come out with her uh, novel, her historical novel, she would come out with every year. And it would always be in October, which is my birthday month now. So I thought it was about me, right, whenever she was coming out with that that nice. one novel. Um, but then, you know, at the same time, I'm uh, in graduate school and I'm learning the history that I need to learn in order to uh, teach my literature classes. And I'm, I also have a, a master's of fine arts, learning how to write and all of this stuff together, and it just occurred to me, well, everybody doesn't necessarily have to wait once a year. There could be someone else who tried to get out there, and it could be me. Right. Um, so, yeah, it all came together in this way that, uh, like I said, it just slowly dawned on me that maybe I could do this. I might have a contribution to make in terms of historical romance. And so there it was. It's amazing how those ideas, the ones that are like the right idea, immediately make people feel mm-hmm. like, not, wow, that's awesome, but why didn't I think of this before? What's wrong with Right, that? exactly. <laughs> exactly. 
So then, and it's, exactly it's right. continued to pay off. Like you've continued, you've won awards, you've shared all kinds of stories. And what would you say is a through line of a particular story or how do you, cause there's so much history that you could explore even mm-hmm. with the themes you're looking mm-hmm. at. Like, how do you find mm-hmm. a moment? Like your most recent book, The Washerwoman's War, you found a, a moment in history to write about, but there are so mm-hmm. many of these moments. Like what is one that jumps out at you and you say, no, that one's got to be a book. Well, for me, initially it was reconstruction because mm-hmm. nobody was talking about that in a way because what the particular narrative of reconstruction in the United States has been handed down to us is of this sad, horrific, terrible, violent time, and people forget to look at the early part of reconstruction when it was hopeful, and there was a particular um, mindset of of change and possibility amongst the formerly enslaved population. It's the particular time when they began to put in motion or to set in motion the kinds of activities that meant that future generations would be able to become fully-fledged citizens, especially in the realm of education. And so I was a little bit put out about that. And I was like, why why isn't anybody talking about that aspect of it? And so that's what drew me to... Uh, that particular time period. Yeah, because why would people, people always feel hopeful at the beginning of something and then they get stuck in the middle. And then, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and then of course, just like today, like the things that make the news are the most violent ones. When I looked around at the uh, history of education in that particular time period and realized that this is when a good uh, most really of the uh, historically black colleges emerged. That's that to me answered the question in terms of where did these people put their hope um, mm. in terms of the building this country it was in the colleges that, that um, a lot of them still exist today. And then you have um, this great, I've been reading one of the, the a prequel, I guess, to one of the series mm-hmm. and Mm-hmm. There is this really amazing kind of era of people across, I guess, cl- in some ways, class lines, cultural lines, but within the same race and how they are encountering the same situation, like between really mm-hmm. and Lawrence. And I, I think it's a fascinating line to play with. How is it to sort of play with that in a romantic context? The, the lawyer's luck sort of came about because um, someone uh, on Amazon, where they tell you you're not supposed to read your reviews and stuff, but um, <laughs> yeah. someone asked this question <laughs> about or said this particular thing about, uh, well, someone like my heroine in the novel could not have existed, and so I wrote the romance of her parents to show how she could have existed um, in the way she comes about in 1866. So it was kind of a, I was going back kind of thing, but a lot of people really love that story, but that's the way it came about. So it wasn't, it was more accidental. (laughs) It wasn't quite um, intentional. And then um, as it happens in romance, a lot of people got mad at me because I killed them off. Um, oh, so that was one of the things. But she was like, I'd already written the first book first, and they were already 
deceased, so you know. Yeah, it was already over. Yeah, it was already over, exactly, so. That's a really amazing way to respond to an Amazon review, though. That's real dedication yes. to be like, I'll show you. I'll write a novella. I'm going to write a whole book just to prove that this is possible. I think that's a really positive right. way to respond to an Amazon review. That's There's awesome. That. There's that too. There's that too. Yeah. The I show you method of novel writing. And and the actual aspect of it was, was that it was not something I had done before. I'd never written a novella before. How so, was it to write a yeah. shorter format versus a full novel? I was always terrified of doing that because um, I had always believed and it had been put into me and ingrained into me that I was not a short story writer, that I was always a novelist, and that that was going to be a better way for me forward if I intended to write, was to write novels only. So the, the aspect of the novella came up uh, a lot in part because Back a couple of years ago, it was believed to be this kind of, uh, you could be a potential boss leader or something to draw people in, to give people a sample of your work, etc. Um, so that's how I, I got started thinking it was possible, and actually it has worked very well for me. So even in ways beyond what that initial question <laughs> on Amazon had for me, um, it's really worked very well as a, as a particular area of my writing to write a number of novellas. I feel like the word novella feels very like, of course you'd have romantic novellas. It sounds like a kind of negligee or something. Like I've got a novella. Yes, <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> That's true. So how do you lay out because I think this is something I, I made a very failed attempt to write a historical novel um, a number of years mm. ago. And it that puppy crashed mm. and burned because I felt so beholden to the history and the era and getting all the details right that it kind of suffocated the story. So how do you hold yeah. the and, and this is such an important and loaded historical context that you're working mm -hmm. with that has such, um, I think, I don't know, there's so much importance to it. Like, how is it to sort mm -hmm. of have fiction in such an important historical context and to still, you know, enjoy the characters and make that all come together? Well, I think it's just always been a part of my view of the history in terms of what it means to tell a more full and complete uh, historical story and, and part of that is not just in terms of oh these, these particular things whether they were you know terrible things or joyous things happened but also in terms of bringing across there were people who lived through this particular time period so thinking of them in that way and trying to present them in that way as people first, mm -hmm. you just happened to not be able to have a cell phone, you know, <laughs> <laughs> ride in a car, <laughs> so right. um, that was really where I was, I was coming across at it, and, and a lot of my um, writing that I, again, when I first got the idea that, you know, bipped me upside the head, as it were, um, was thinking of my students as a potential audience 
for example, because I knew that the kinds of things that they were reading, I mean, you know, it's, and it's fine to read these things um, in terms of, you know, the steamier side of, you know, erotica and whatnot. But, you know, when they would come and they would find out the history and their eyes would go wide, I would, oh, I never knew that or whatever. Part of my impetus was to try to make the history so they could see it was about people, mm. not unlike themselves and that their particular age maybe or whatever, what they went through at a different time period. Yeah, I don't have the same kind of, as you were describing, um, bondage, if you will, <laughs> in terms of the historical <laughs> content. I don't know because that, that to me, will, and I just, maybe because I know that will come. So I'm not, wor- I'm not overly worried about it. Right. That makes sense. Yeah, yeah, of course. Can you share a little bit more about your research process or how much research you do around the individual incidents or the historical period before you start thinking about the story? Because you have several series, so it's like you have a character that you can yeah. develop over time over a few stories. But you know, when you start exactly. a new series, how do you you know, how do you do your research? How do you lay it out? Like, let's get real nerdy with the writing process. Okay. <laughs> okay. Well, there is a certain amount of the time period of the particular time period that I write in that I already know mm-hmm. because for the day job. So there's that. But as you're saying, if there's some particular incident or occasion, then I do have to go to that and research that primary resources, newspapers, um, uh, books about the time period, and and sort of doing that kind of trailing back through. This uh, is something I'd had to do for um, the book that I have coming out, the novella that I have coming out in December, um, whereby the whole aspect of the trope of the male order of rides was familiar to me already. But what I had not seen numbers of, of course, were mail-order brides of color, for Mm. one thing, and then, which there were, and this is, again, one of those things where the full story has not been developed or whatever, but then even within that, what I had not seen was a mail-order bride story with a bride of color, but who was passing Mm. for white in order to make that journey. Wow. So more of that involved more research into people who passed the kinds of things that they were compelled to do in order to be successful with that, as well as researching what the actual law was in Colorado, which is where this community was. Um, It's kind of one of those unknown or I think buried aspects of history that people either have in the West have decided not to talk about as part of the American West history, but the reason why several Western states have a low, small population of people of color is because it was legislated that way. Not because they didn't want to go and live there, but because they passed laws that said, <laughs> you're not buying land here, you're not staying here, we're not going to let you get married here, all of those things. So it involved uh, getting nerdy and excavating through law books (laughs) and thinking about how Colorado developed as a territory and why it did and 
um, what those people were thinking of and the, the, the series that I'm part of is set during the, the year that Colorado became a state, which is also something that is always interesting to me. It's like, what does that process look like when, you know, this land becomes a state and how did that happen? And again, what was in the minds of the people who just passed it into law? Right. No blacks are a lot of people, you know. <laughs> so, that's um, so and that's crazy. what the law says. Yeah, it is. But it's like, that's what the law says. The law says it, it, they took the time and trouble to say not just black people, but mulatto people. Right. As well. So, really digging into what that law said and how I could get around it was a really beneficial thing and it figured very well into the twist that happens in terms of how and why this character can find her happy ending in the novella. So it really worked out even better than I hoped um, that it would. So I'm really um, looking forward to what people were going to say about it. It's a, it's a slightly different story for me because it's my first interracial Mm. I've never had a, a white hero before, so I was a little bit nervous about that. But the initial um, reviews that I'm getting for people within this series group that I'm uh, that is publishing this is very good. So I have to ask, like, what is your writing schedule like? Because you just had a book come out in October, and now you're talking about a novella coming out in December. Like, are you? Do you not? Do you have terrible <laughs> insomnia, or are you? <laughs> do you have some crazy secret of productivity like what is going on with that well um the ideal writing schedule for me an ideal week if it goes according to plan is that I'm, I'm physically in the classroom on campus doing stuff between Tuesday and Thursday mm-hmm and then if I've done everything I'm supposed to do day job-wise or whatever across those three days, then ideally I'm supposed to have the other four days of the week in which to write. And I, I can fast draft once I have thought through the idea. So it was one of those things um, Tina McElroy Anza told me um, uh, a couple of years ago, she said, thinking time is writing time. And I always kind of felt very guilty about thinking through a story, but it does really help me in terms of allowing time for a story to really grow and develop inside of my mind before mm-hmm. I set it down on paper for that first draft so that then, boom, I can take off and, if necessary, put down five, maybe 6,000 words in a day in wow. order to get it out. With, yeah, well, you know, but it has to be that I have thought about it for quite a while. So I can, I can get a 20K novella out over that long weekend for a first draft. And then I can go through process of editing, etc. So that is amazing. Yeah, but it's not like us every not every weekend. No, you know, it's just like you know, you have to store up, you know, in order to have that kind of almost explosive energy being put forward in terms of that. So, but like I said, that's the ideal. Right. Normally, I'm bringing I'm bringing work home where 
I have my big heavy paper bag where it's like, oh, there it is. That's what I'm going to be doing this weekend, not writing, you know. <laughs> yeah, if you're teaching, I mean, at different points in the year, you've got to have like the period of grading yes. and all of those things that come up. Yes, and this is that, that period right about now. So it's good that I have sort of put a couple of things to bed. And, and then, you know, I want to participate in NaNoWriMo like everybody else. So that would mean, you know, the, the consistent uh, nearly 2K a day. Uh, and I try to do that. I have AlphaSmart. What's so AlphaSmart? You don't know AlphaSmart? Oh, my oh gosh. I'm wow. so glad I'm, I'm able to bring you into the world of AlphaSmart. Oh, my God. I'm so excited. What is it? It is a little keyboard um, that you carry around and I can carry it in my purse because I like big purses so it's a keyboard in fact it's not a very large display screen that you're just putting words into um it's not connected to the internet oh yeah <laughs> like your phone is you know what I'm saying yes so you can just put down words and then there's a cord that goes from the alpha smart to your computer and you transmit the words and it can transmit into word it can transmit into scrivener and because it's just a keyboard in effect with a very small display screen you're not editing yourself can't see any more than like four lines at a time oh my god that is amazing and yeah and this is this is actually i mean there are the poor company that that used to make them doesn't anymore unfortunately because it was um a, it was a tool back in the, uh, not like, now I'm aging myself, like late 80s, early 90s for reporters to start uh -huh. And then they fell out of use with them, and they started using them for kids in schools. And now what's left, because, again, the company's not making them anymore, are writers who are trying to get words down without being distracted by the Internet. So they don't even make them anymore. They, they don't make them, but they have them, like, sitting around, you know. Because <laughs> not the only people who, like, want to use them. Are, and it's, it runs on batteries, like, forever. Three, three AA batteries. The batteries run, like, keep forever in terms of that. Um, it's not something you have to plug in um, or charge. So and they, like, on eBay? eBay for, like, yeah. Cheap. Oh, yeah, eBay. Dirt cheap, like, 25 bucks. What? Oh, my God. Yes. Amazing. Yes. And that really helps in terms of getting down word count when, you know, again, that whole thing with the Internet that can be a big distraction. Oh, your friend beats in. She wants to gossip. <laughs> right. Yeah. You just whip out little Alfie and hopefully <laughs> get down that 2K for NaNoWriMo and then transmit it. In your line. That is amazing. Yeah, because yeah, I, I think... you're alpha smart. <laughs> oh, no. But I'm the, so we, in. But this is the thing. They made certain types, right, over time. And I think this is part of the way in which the little company shot themselves in the foot. Um, they were trying to get better and are more like computers, which was oh, like, no, no. that's not, you know. So they had started to have all this wireless stuff. So it, what you would want would be I, a, a Neo, what's called NEO. Any version of the Neo, those okay. are the best. You might go to a 3,000, maybe a 2,000, but stay away from the Dana. That's, that was the mistake. No Dana. <laughs> no Dana. Sometimes I just even buy them, like, for writer friends of mine, and then you just go in there. And sometimes it's, like, 25 maybe even $30. They'll still have, like, little cases that they came in. 
That is crazy. And, you know, just have a little case and you just put it down in your purse or you carry it in a little case and uh, there you go. That is really amazing because the way I have dealt with the te- the same problem you're talking about, the technology disaster, mm-hmm. is just mm-hmm. writing in a notebook and just mm-hmm. having mm-hmm. no typing at all, at least for the first draft. And then yeah. typing it into Scrivener, you know, as a sort of 1.5 draft to sort of do some light yeah. review. But this could be yeah, a very I, cool I, I, compromise. My handwriting is atrocious. So I can't. <laughs> <do that. laughs> yeah, I have once like a... upon a time, but not anymore. No. Well, if you're faster too, yeah. I mean, I think somebody who's really moving when they're typing. I mean, I'm interested in this concept of fast drafting too. I feel like there's a yeah. method in that. Mm-hmm. Tell me about your fast drafting. What that looks like. Well, I just really try to get down a line or two, like about each scene. Um, you know, it could be the goal, it could be what happens, um, and sometimes when I am in the middle of fast drafting, um, it may be that something more than that happens, and then of course, I, I do tend to be more of a panster mm. than the plotter, so that's the other thing. And sometimes, you know, it's so funny, like the stuff that I tell my students about writing happens to me, and I think that. It's mean that that happens. Yeah. <laughs> You're like, I know about this. Why I'm am I getting telling, stuck in it? Right. I'm telling all of these people these writing truisms, et cetera, and stuff, and it's like, oh, this is exactly what I've got my reasons. Ah, you know? So what's an example of that happening? About make, making sure you have a central point, a thesis, all of this other Oh, <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah, and that's, you know, this, the scene has to have a reason for happening or else what is it there for? And that's what I'm always like waving my arms telling them, you know, what's this paragraph for? You know? <laughs> Do you need it? So, yeah. Yeah. Stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So there it is. One of those things. But yeah, so that's, that's what happens. And like I said, you know, if I break it up into chunks, maybe you've even heard of this before. You might write maybe a couple thousand or like a thousand words in the morning and then go do other stuff. I go do all other, what I call, um, housefrau riggins, um, when I transform into her. I go <laughs> do all that kind of stuff. <laughs> Come back in the afternoon, do another couple of stuff, and then spend some time with my kid or whatever and do another thousand or two in the evening and it adds up. If That's I happen to be... Yeah, if I happen to be on campus that day or whatever, and I'm not, you know, busy in between classes or whatever, then I can get down a couple thousand. Um, if I write on a night when I'm, when I'm, a day when I'm usually on campus on Tuesday or Thursday, then I, it's, it's usually because I'm on deadline anyway. And so I just have to come home and grab some coffee or whatever and go to it for a couple of hours um, because I do tend to have such a long day. Yes. On days of the week when I'm on campus. But it is possible. But, yeah, it, it can be exhausting in terms of that. But it's all because in terms of I have to have a certain amount of the story in my head first. And so then you can just. It's not going to happen if it's not there. Yeah, of course. So you said you think yeah. about it for mm-hmm. quite a while. So how long is quite a while mm-hmm. in terms of you how long you think about the story before you're ready to just put it down with big word counts every day? 
Well, if I'm able to like, use this example, the story is coming out in December as an example. Um, I was approached about this particular project in April and May of this year. Mm-hmm. So it, it, it had been on my mind since then. Got it. April or May. And then, you know, we had the deadline. And then when did you start writing? Um, in September. Uh-huh. Yeah. And it, it, I wrote a bit of it, and then I felt stopped. And I think that was because I didn't know enough yet. Mm-hmm. So I had to do some more thinking and then come back to it in October. And fortunately, it all worked out because the deadline was November 1st. <laughs> so you've just, you've just put that one put that one down yeah exactly yeah it's like yeah yeah but part of that again and, and this is what happens with historical i've found when i was stopped in september it was because i had not done enough of the research on that law mm. so once i did all of that then it came to me so it could be sometimes like you're saying with a particular incident or whatever having done that research informs the historical story and even makes you think if you have to depart from it in terms of that kind of thing that has to be gotten down in an author's note to explain why you departed or whatever, then there you have it. But this, but, but, but for this story, I, um, I usually do have an author's note um, right. in terms of uh, what, what I explain and etc. I usually do. Um, and I, I probably will with this one, but I don't anticipate it would be as long because this was really this was really the historical truth of. And I, you know, was glad to say I just felt compelled to to do it because, yes, it, the storyline centers around this town and whether or not they can uh, persuade the railroad to come through. Um, but they have to show the town is settled by having a certain number of mail order brides come. Oh my God. You know, yeah. You know, so there's that. But to me, I think it was also about what kind of town this town was going to be. And so I really felt like that my story could speak to that. The, the series itself has a fair amount of diversity across it, but nobody's really talking about that issue. It was more or less being incorporated into it. And I just felt like my story could be the place where there would be this determination of, okay, what kind of town is this going to be, even though the state has this horrible law on the books and in reality it did not get off of Colorado's books until the 1950s. That's crazy. Yeah, it's crazy, but it's true. I mean, and it's still, you know, people having this prevailing thought about Oregon, for instance, you know, and I just mean seeing this the other day on Twitter, you know, talking about, oh, well, such, such happened, and I'm from Oregon. Well, you, do you realize then that it's your state that had legislated this whole aspect of do not come here. You are not welcome here. You cannot buy land here. That's crazy. <laughs> this I... is why there are no black people in Oregon. It's not because they didn't want to go there. Yeah. <laughs> right. So, yeah, I think the time, you know, we're able to freely admit these things. You know, some people think of this as like, oh, why is she dredging that up? And I know that there are people who look at my historicals and they think that. But to me, I, I really feel like we really need to talk about these things before we can move on. Absolutely. As a country, to sort of den- to deny the basic, the, the, the foundation 
of why things are the way they are to just try to not look at that. I think that's very wise, but that's just me. No, I agree with you. I mean, the whole fingers in your ears, mm-hmm. la 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 method doesn't yeah, exactly. help anybody at all. Exactly. And I think I love that it's in a genre other than sort of just the straight history section, because that's like a very particular mm-hmm. type of reader, somebody who's going to read straight yes. history accounts or records, but it doesn't reach you know, the entire, you know, other people who read different types of books. So this like, this is mm-hmm. a page turner. Like in reading yours, I'm like, I cannot put this down. I was like, I need to go to bed, but I want to oh, keep reading great. and find out what's going to happen with this. So I think... Well, I appreciate that. Absolutely. And I think that that's exciting to think that not only is, you know, that you're learning. That's like the best kind of historical fiction to me is like, wow, mm-hmm. I'm really enjoying yeah. this just as a book on its own. And I'm also learning something at the same time. I love that too. Yes. Um, Miss Bev calls that edutainment. And so I agree. Edutainment. I love that. That's great. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, that's so, and I think I would think as a, as a professor that also has an added benefit. It's like, Oh, I get to teach this other way than just, you know, teaching the writing straightforward as a professor. Or, yeah, or the history, you know, in terms of that. And I, I yeah. tease, but I, you know, I just tease about, like, I love blowing up their little historical expectations. <laughs> Especially when it's like, it's a certain class I have to teach, you know, it's like, 19th uh, century U.S. literature, that's boring or whatever. And then it's like, uh, no, it's not. <laughs> And let me tell you why. And so then when I teach you to certain things, it's like, oh, my goodness, I never knew that. And I'm like, yep, that's this is what you thought of as boring. So, <laughs> Yeah, the expected sort of party line is, yeah. you know, very bland mm-hmm. by design. Exactly. Exactly. And that's a shame. I don't know where that's coming from. I don't know, you know, what's going on in terms of other classrooms where people are thinking this. But, no, these things are far from boring. But I, I think, again, when you bring the history down to people as opposed to use regimes and monarchies and dates and all that other kind of stuff, I just kind of think of these things in terms of, the, you know, sagas, <laughs> that people can get into it better. I wonder if, you know, at a certain point, obviously, the government and everyone was very invested in a certain kind of bland, sanitized story about what was going on and deliberately pass mm-hmm. that on and nobody's really been double checking it because it's like, oh, well, that's in the books. And so, yeah, you know, we'll yeah. just and keep, this is, is what happened. It's, and it's great. There's great resistance to it. I mean, this is what I've, I, I call it the historical battle when I'm out there fighting all the time. There is a, there's still, no, this is what was taught. This is what we know to be true and whatever. People just are you know, almost a double down, really, in terms of that that narrative. Yeah, so it really for me has been looking at it and thinking about it as like one heart and mind at a time because people are very very attached to that narrative. Yeah, it's like okay, well we know this is what happened, and nobody wants to deal with mm-hmm. the reality versus. Right. It just—it strikes me as what I like to call a more complete reality. You can't leave these other people out, right? Yeah, so that's what I—that's how I like to. It's not about leaving out; it's about adding to. 
isn't that the point of of books is to add to the story it wouldn't be any good if we were just telling the same story over and over again exactly Um, and this is particularly why when i was invited to be part of this meal order bride series and it's such a popular trope that yeah i knew that the the thing that we're doing it was different that hadn't been done before but i'm thinking okay can we not even expand that a little bit more how has the response been? I mean, you talked about one Amazon review. Like, how are people responding? I mean, you've won all kinds of awards. It's gotten a whole bunch of positive critical reviews. But, like, what are your what is your readership like? Like, what do you hear from them? Um, I'm hearing that the, the same kind of, you know, positive uh, feedback about thank you for talking about this. Thank you for exposing this. I, I never knew that kind of thing um, very much. I, you know, and so I, I focus on that in, in terms of what I'm bringing to people, um, in terms of what the, the educate, edutainment kind of aspect. But I, then I also kind of jokingly refer to these other portions of Romance Landia and say, I know they think I'm nuts. So, so. <laughs> they think you're nuts? Oh, really? Yeah, I do that sometimes. I mean, I say it's kind of a little ha-ha joke kind of thing because there's still such the predominating aspect in um, historical romance of Regency uh-huh. um, that it's almost as if you're doing any other aspect of history, like the first, you know, you know in terms of the, the niche aspect of American historical romance, then historical American historical romance featuring people of color it just gets down deeper and deeper and deeper like well shoot I mean and it you know when I first started out and uh, indicated to a very popular author about this was what I was doing you know she kind of like gave me this strange look and said well some niches are smaller than others oh that's not friendly (laughs) I am so fascinated no, by the not. romance. I feel like this could be a whole episode unto itself. But like the sort of yes. construction of, as you call it, romance landia, like that there are yeah. almost like mm-hmm. neighborhoods inside of it and different. Very much so. It feels Very like a whole so. map to me where everybody hangs mm-hmm. out in their area and you're like building a new neighborhood. Yeah. Basically, and it's sort of in. I think of it in a very Venn diagrammy kind of way, in terms of the neighborhoods where I'm allowed to intersect. You know, oh wow, (laughs) kinds of things. So, mm -hmm. but I I do know that in as far as being an African American romance voice, I do know that I'm being heard more than others. Mm. So, and I think it's because of the history because there's so few, or had been up until a few years ago, now people are getting brave. <laughs> I mean, maybe it's, you know, I, not, not bright or anything, but I, I, I do kind of think that I, I did, like, show people that it's possible. People seem to be very afraid of trying this for a very long time. Well, I'm so glad that you show them that it, it works <laughs> and that people want to read it and that it's it's a totally important and enjoyable and thrilling kind of area to be writing about yeah it's just sort of like come on out here people the water's fine it's okay <laughs> there's yeah. gonna be more of these stories there are many 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 more of these stories that need to be told that must be told 
Yeah, there's so, so much. Yeah. There's such a long period of history. There's so much and so many people and so many so many states and so many countries involved. Um, there's so much oh, yeah, to definitely. work on. Being able to write numerous series just from the period of history that you've taken shows that there's so much material that could be explored. And I hope that it will be. Yes, true. Me too. I want to read those stories myself. (laughs) I know exactly. Well, this is maybe somebody is having the same thing, waiting for your books to come out. We'll have the same realization you have. It could be. Maybe I can write some too. Yes, exactly. So what's coming up after your, are you working on another one yet or are you resting? I mean, it's been like a couple days since you finished the the deadline. How long do you take? How long do you take between projects or probably far too long? And that's why, you know, there was one point where one day I finished a book and literally typed the end and then just open another file. I'm like, yay, this is cool. You know, that doesn't happen all the time. Mm-hmm. But uh, I have been working on a contemporary uh, women's really? fiction for a while now. Yes. That I call the super secret project. Oh. Um, <laughs> that is um, very uh, high concept hooky kind of thing. Fun. And uh, yeah, but it has involved me having a particular learning curve in terms of, te- of learning how to write that way. Because there's yeah, a different that, structure what, or my, you have a different... I, not exactly a different structure, but maybe it may, maybe my voice mm-hmm. in terms of the history thing. Um, I've been told sometimes when I'm in the middle of writing, somebody calls me. My mother told me one time, sounds like you have cobwebs in your voice. <laughs> <laughs> You're speaking for so the past. So maybe it's like not writing, right, exactly. So in terms of not writing like that, it's a little bit different. Um, but uh, this is, like I said, it's a very powerful story I feel compelled to tell. So uh, I'm, that's my nano project. I'm oh. working on that. And then, of course, I'm always sort of reading and researching some other story. And then the next thing that I'm, you know, sort of reading about, uh, historically speaking, because it's not like I'm going to stop doing that. But no. Like, you know. Now, I feel like I've planted a particular stake in the ground, historically speaking, and so I'm permitted now to branch out a little bit. Exciting. That's what I look at it as. I'm not leaving it. I'm just branching out a little bit. I think you have to follow what's exciting to you, and you have to follow and Mm -hmm. try new things, and then it'll inform what you're doing in historical to have done this and... I think all right. of it. All of but it yeah, there's a whole thing about branding and all that other oh, kind of God. stuff, yeah. you know, that happens. And that's what I think. I think I'm I'm pretty much known for this historical thing now. So that branding has already pretty much occurred. So that's why I say, okay, now here's this story. That's a story that has been in my heart and mind now for like 11 years, really. Wow. So, <laughs> yeah. so when do you when do you plan on on hoping to release the super secret project? I don't know, but people who, the, you know, because I don't have an agent currently, mm. and this is this would be a story that would require that. Right. So, yeah. So if you're going through that process, that's going to take some time Yeah. in terms of, you know, when that would come out. So, and hopefully the agents would, you know, be interested in it because it's a contemporary thing. Yeah. The historical things they've not cared as much about, which is why I don't have an agent. <laughs> Right. Maybe someone will like it and we'll see beyond that. Who knows? Well, 
keep us posted and um, we want to know when yeah, it's out yeah. and maybe we can talk about it more then. I would be happy to. All right. Thank you so much for coming on, Piper. This was great. Yes. Thank you, Caroline, for having me. I really, really appreciate it. Thank you for listening to the Secret Library Podcast. The show is produced by me, Caroline Donahue, and Frederick Barry McWilliams Jr., my tireless audio engineer. To get show notes for this episode and all other episodes, please visit secretlibrarypodcast.com. To get updates, literary love, and notification when new episodes are posted, sign up there for Footnotes, my newsletter. And to learn about life coaching with me to work on building your writing life, visit carolinedonahue.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend. Gold stars to everybody who leaves a rating and review on iTunes. We're so grateful. Until next time, happy reading.